Hey everyone, Father Tony here, and it's Talk Gnosis After Dark. Jonathan is away on a very special assignment, but joining us to talk about uh, middle Christian magic, or the teenage years as we're calling it, uh, Deacon Michael Stroyan. Michael, hello. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining us for the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So uh, in the video part, we talked a little bit about the uh, kind of flow of Christian magic through history, through the Renaissance, but I, th I think we'll get into a little bit more uh, specifics about the details and the history and things uh, as we go. So let's start right off. When we're talking about uh, the transition from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, uh, one of the things that influenced, I think, uh, Christian magical traditions uh, was the return of a lot of uh, mystical texts from the Middle East during the Crusades. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the um, Arabic uh, magical traditions and alchemical traditions and things that came back to Europe after the, after the Crusades. Oh, goodness. Uh, you have quite a bit of material coming back from the East, but you also have quite a bit of material being produced in Europe at the time as well. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you do get a lot of Arabic astrological texts. So, for example, what would eventually become known as the Picatrix, mm -hmm. which was so profoundly influential on medieval magic. Um, you have that. You have many alchemical texts, some of which were throwbacks to what was being practiced in Greece and Rome, some of which was just a continuation of what alchemy was being done in the Arabic peninsulas and elsewhere. So you have a lot of those materials. And then in Spain, for example, uh, it's around this time that we start getting a development of what we could call the Kabbalah as we understand it today. Mm -hmm. Then in Germany, you have the humanists who are taking advantage of this and trying to use the Kabbalah to prove, for example, the Old Testament origins of the Trinity. Uh, thank you, Athanasius Kircher and others for that. Mm -hmm. So we have a very, very big confluence of different cultures. Um, Geomancy as well came into Europe and uh, apocryphally was very, very close to being considered a uh, form of acceptable Christian divination. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you have quite a bit of material coming from all sides. Mm -hmm. What's the Picatrix for the, for our listeners who don't who aren't familiar with that? Uh, the Picatrix is a <clears throat> magical text uh, that basically deals with the decans and various images associated with uh, stellar figures and how they can be applied to influence one's life. Um, for example, you can have something like make this image of a scorpion in Mars hour or on the day of Mars, which would be a Tuesday, and put it in your cellar and you won't be afflicted with rats. Things like that. Hmm. Very practical. Yeah, very, very practical. Yeah. Most magic should be. <laughs> and uh, tell us about the, the Corpus Hermeticum and the uh, kind of hermetic and alchemical texts that are coming back to Europe. So around the Renaissance, we have the uh, rise of scholasticism. I mentioned briefly uh, Thomas Aquinas, mm -hmm. uh, the famous saint and uh, doctor of the Catholic Church. And then in various courts, you have people who are translating Hellenic texts that returned from the East and were preserved. So the Corpus Hermeticum is a collection of 
pithy sayings about uh, theurgical concepts. So you have some elements of Hellenic cosmology as well as Chaldean magical pits and so forth that effectively described what would have been happening around the uh, late classical era. So they eventually would find their way into the more scholastical magic traditions and today are still being used. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if they were meant to be necessarily read as scripture as such, but many organizations do give them a hallowed status, and I think that they're worth reflecting on. Mm -hmm. And you can find lots of uh, translations of that online and in various uh, various books and things if you're interested in the Corpus Hermeticum. It's certainly an interesting body of work to uh, for somebody who's interested in this kind of stuff to, to look at. Uh, what 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 does the um, what does the alchemical tradition look like at this at this period? <clears throat> well, the alchemical tradition at this period, like in most periods, was a uh, multifaceted. What would eventually become uh, modern medicine actually has its origins in alchemy as well as uh, physics and chemistry. So alchemy, while we like to give it a hallowed status as finding the Philosopher's Stone and that what not, uh, these were rather later philosophical and theological concepts that were superimposed on it. So alchemy as always has been practical as well as spiritual in pursuit. Mm -hmm. So we don't really get anything like inner alchemy as is talked about today. Um, simply because psychology really wasn't a science at that time. Mm -hmm. So, but you do have the foundations for modern chemistry and so forth in alchemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're talking about people who are, uh, you know, actually sitting in a dark lab someplace with all their glassware and, and uh, making various tinctures and, and solutions and things. And, and uh, and most often that was just medical. It was to mm -hmm. cure your aunt's sinusitis, uh, <laughs> to relieve goiter, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But you do have some more unscrupulous individuals. Um, Edward Kelly is a great example. Uh, alchemy hit the courts really big because, hey, the more money you have, right, the better you are. So you get that. And it's basically a case of royalty, who they themselves were often illiterate, um, misunderstanding spiritual metaphors that are found within the text. Mm -hmm. And because of this, you also get a backlash and a persecution of alchemists. Because, again, a good magician is also a good assassin. <laughs> so that's why you end up with these wonderful texts of alchemy that are cloaked in various symbol sets and outrageously gorgeously illustrated. Yes, definitely. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot of good uh, uh, engravings and woodcuts and things came out of those those uh, those texts. Um, you mentioned uh, Edward uh, Edward Kelly and you mentioned John Dee earlier in the video portion. Um, these guys are important figures who pop up in the history of magic at this time. Uh, who were they and what were they doing? John Dee was a very complex polymath. He was around at the time of the English Reformation, 
um, which was a very, very fascinating time to be alive. Specifically, I use Reformation in contrast to um, Protestant, uh, the Protestant Reformation, although mm -hmm. elements of that were in there as well, as the Church of England seceded from Rome. Mm -hmm. They ended up going an entirely different route. In fact, one can argue that the Anglican Communion represents a continuity of praxis that is older than Rome's presently. But that's another matter. <laughs> so, you have John Dee, who's a polymath, historian, astrologer, uh, very, very beloved in uh, Queen Elizabeth's court, and actually did the astrological consultations for her coronation. And also a very, very interesting man whose pursuits in magic were initially, and I maintain were, uh, theologically based. He wanted to understand the primordial origins of Christianity in the world, as well as the cosmology of the world. And at this time you have this concept of the language of birds, which predates Christianity naturally in Europe, but also was later applied to uh, the Adamic language, uh, the language of paradise. And so he comes into contact with the con artist who has a very good reputation as a seer, and they strike a business deal, and eventually what comes out of this is the Enochian system of magic. Which is what? Can you, can you explain a little bit about that? The Enochian system of magic is a... The Enochian magical system emerges from John Dee's inquiries into the original Adamic language. Um, it's called... It, he would have called it in the angelical magic, but Enochian was applied to that because you end up having Slavic... Uh, translations of the apocryphal book of Enoch uh, finally being translated into Latin and other European languages. So John Dee is trying to figure out, hey, what's going on in paradise? What's the interface between God and the angels? Where do we stand the cosmos? And how can we all be related? Um, again, one of the beautiful things that John Dee was trying to do with this is also prove a continuity between the English Reformation and the Catholic Church, and basically trying to do, in short, a kind of interfaith theology there. Mm -hmm. So he has these revelations from these angels. Uh, they tell him, you know, make these tablets, write these symbols on them. A lot of these symbols actually come from other grimoires that John Dee would have had because at that time in Europe, he was the man with the largest library on the planet at the time. Yeah, he had like 12 books. Uh, like thousands. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm 12 just thousands. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so eventually the Enochian stuff would get lost and then re rediscovered. And it would take on an entirely different angle in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. Although it's nice to see that there's a resurgence in uh, trying to recreate the processes, at least, of what Dee and Kelly were up to. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I find interesting about that whole thing is, you know, John Dee was, um, you know, he, he, was a, he was a bit of a spy for Queen Elizabeth. And so a lot of the, 
a lot of the way he interacted with the <coughs> world was in in codes and and secrets and things. And so I find it interesting that the system that he developed, uh, you know, resembles a lot of uh, you know secret code kind of stuff. You know, that the Enochian language and and things like that is. Uh, very fascinating period of history for anybody who's interested in this kind of thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Dee was definitely very much familiar with the uh, writings of Johannes Trithemius, who himself was a cryptographer mm -hmm. and may have himself been engaged in uh, some subversive activities on that front. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what uh, that's what you do with the smart people <laughs> of that time, is you put them to work for the crown doing, you know, statecraft, which. I guess at that time was mostly, <laughs> you know, mostly. And then you give them the Alan Turing treatment afterwards. Well, sure, right. <laughs> that's a that's a whole different uh, that's a whole different uh, time period, though. Um, th there's a uh, there are a lot of people who propose this idea of kind of a primordial tradition that uh, that has existed, uh, you know, way into antiquity and and, and maybe even beyond. Um, what we understand to be the traditional history of civilization. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on how that kind of primordial tradition may or may not appear uh, throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance? Do you think we're talking about a continuation of, a, of one big long tradition or uh, are we talking about a bunch of disparate traditions that all kind of get glommed together by creative people? It's definitely a bunch of different traditions that get glommed together by different people and given a new interpretation every century or so. It's no different today. I mean, for example, if you look at what arose in the 19th century um, and early 20th century under the ages of perennialism, it tries to show that, you know, oh, we've always had these thoughts, there's a big monomyth that we're all engaging in on one level or another. Now, of course, there's no such thing as a monomyth, so we have to look at what these people were thinking about at the time. So, for example, with, G, uh, with John Dee and his attempts at looking for the Adamic language and all that with the publications of the Enochian materials from Old Slavonic, you know, that's kind of his thing. Then you have other people who are talking about like I mentioned before, the language of birds, the uh, ability to understand the natural world of the divine directly and interpret it, that had a different meaning in ancient Rome than it does later on in medieval magic. So it's just different interpretations throughout history that eventually lead us to where we are today. Mm, very interesting. So you you don't think that there um, that there's a kind of a continuity of thought uh, that happens between these traditions. You know, even maybe on a superficial level, where they're uh, you know people are trading and crossing paths and and sharing these ideas. People are definitely trading. People are definitely crossing paths. And as each culture contacts another culture and adopts these concepts it becomes their own. It becomes entirely different from the original. It's like the old game of telephone that mm -hmm. you play in school. One person tells a story, then you have to tell that story to another person. That person whispers in another person's ears. And by the time you get back to the original person, it's oftentimes, if not slightly, then an entirely different story or narration. 
So, in, insofar as continuity goes, I think that there's a continuity of concepts and ideas that are being conveyed, but as for them being part of a ultimate uh, capital T truth that has been handed down from the ages since the time of Adam, that just doesn't work. All right, well, yeah, I guess I'll be a little bit sad for that. <laughs> It's okay. It's always you should, you should subscribe to nihilist memes. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at that. It is always interesting to to try and find that kind of conspiracy theory angle, uh, but yeah, it, sometimes sometimes there's just no there there. I guess. <laughs> nope, and that's okay because then you can create your own. Sure. Right. So we were talking about uh, the Enochian system and how that was largely concerned with um, talking to angels, but um, you know, what, do, uh, what role do demons have in Christian magic of this time? I'm sorry, could you repeat that please? Oh, so what, what role do demons have in the uh, Christian magic of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance? <coughs> the practice of demonic magic, and I say demonic uh, in the Greek sense, mm -hmm. um, is ultimately a survival of the uh, cult of the dead or chthonic uh, spirits from the ancient world. I would say that there's definitely a case that can be made for a continuity of praxis. It just uh, changes its window dressings by the time we get to the medieval period. Uh, work, working with demons uh, never really stopped and never really stopped being associated with well, necromancy, effectively. And necromancy also takes on a different window dressing at this period as well, and in different parts of the Middle Ages. So, in one case, you might be calling on fairies to do your work, but you have to look at where this kind of magic is being done, and what was the cultural understanding of fairies at this time. Are the fairies these cutesy little beasties that have angel wings and go around pollinating flowers and killing babies and, you know, trading your soul? Or are they vestiges of ancient death cults in Northern Europe? Similarly, uh, and hopefully we get on witchcraft in a moment, you do have survival of uh, fertility practices that are definitely very pagan in origin, but eventually given a Christian window dressing. But going back to demons specifically, it's in this period that we do have the consolidation of practices that would give rise to the grimoire goetic practices. So mm -hmm. you have uh, Liber Juratus, um, the Sworn Book of Honoris, um, <coughs> the Solomonic materials as well as the Cyprian texts being produced that deal with this kind of magic. So the role that they play is basically the common man's attempts at solving common man's concerns. Mm -hmm. the, uh, so getting laid, making a lot of money and all that stuff. Right, you know, as you do. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> you, mentioned, um, you mentioned Cyprian there. Um, so let's let's segue right into Saint Cyprian, and then loop back around later and talk about some more folk tradition. So, who is Saint Cyprian, and what does he have to do with all of this? Saint Cyprian, 
is a very complex figure, if he even existed at all. Um, in my personal practice, I do give a nod to an actual person whose name was Cyprian, who may have been a reformed sorcerer. That notwithstanding, he represents a common trope in Western magic. Um, you have this evil sorcerer who, after realizing that his magic isn't working on a particular saint or holy person, mm -hmm. uh, decides to renounce the arrogance of his ways, become Christian, um, eventually finds himself as a member of clergy, and uh, while doing, you know, common clergy things, uh, in secret is still continuing magic, just saying God instead of Zeus. <laughs> and what kind of magic is he doing? That would be very difficult to say. Yeah. Um, I really admire Jake Stratton Kent's uh, analysis of it in uh, his um, the book is mm, uh, The Testament of Cyprian the Mage. Mm -hmm. He gives a fairly comprehensive look at Cyprian and Cyprianic material and its relation to the continuation of Goetia in Western magic. What Cyprian himself would have been doing? Um, well, Cyprian himself was a third century bishop, ostensibly. He would have been practicing something very akin, I imagine, to what we see in the magical papyri mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, clearly, a lot of the material that we get by the medieval period is a conglomeration of so many disparate traditions. Um, Pseudo-epigraphy is a fine tradition in magic, mm -hmm. so someone creates a grimoire um, based on their own experiences, or sometimes even a complete fabrication and gives it a very hallowed name. So you have Cyprian, who wrote this text and established this Sholomance, this school of magic. Mm -hmm. But it's also entirely different by the time you get to Northern Europe, and at, what, at which point you have a lot more in common with the developing Solomonic tradition. And by the time you get to Iberia, that at that point is so late as to be really more reflective of a late renaissance um, transition into I guess what we could call the modern era or early modern era mm -hmm. so you have a famous name you're associated with magic you get a book named after you right see Hermes Trismegistus right <laughs> yep. see Hermes see King Solomon mm -hmm. see Cyprian yeah all right, so um, tell us about the folk magical traditions that are happening at this time. Some people might call it witchcraft. Uh, you know, some people might <coughs> call it kind of a holdover from older uh, pagan traditions. Uh, what are people doing, like kind of boots on the ground people? Well, as always, it depends on where you are mm -hmm. and uh, who you're talking to. So witchcraft is a phenomena that is, by its very nature, atavistic in a lot of ways. It's very, very conservative in the sense that it represents a continuation of oral knowledge that have existed within various societies. So like I mentioned, uh, you know, when you're conjuring fairies, uh, fairies in many of these uh, witch hunter texts are basically deemed demons. Um, mm -hmm. mythology at the time is that fairies weren't good enough for heaven but not bad enough for hell so you end up with these 
semi-divine, demonic figures that, you know, you leave them alone, or you capture one, and you can coerce them to do things. Uh, that's obviously a continuation in many cases of holdovers from uh, indigenous practices, uh, pre-Christian indigenous practices in Europe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, to some, the fairies or elves or dwarves or whatnot would be a continuation of uh, domestic uh, cult practices. So, a uh, famous example is, you know, the house elf, uh, let's use Dobby, <laughs> a wonderful example. Sure. Um, you have house elves being continued in Scandinavia and throughout Europe. Uh, they could be uh, carryovers from the times of having a tribal or family uh, tutelary deities. They could also be seen as representatives of a clan's or region's gods themselves or ancestors even. Uh, it's, it's a very complex thing. But by the time uh, Christianity becomes the dominant uh, force, you know, you end up having people that still have a cultural knowledge of it and interfacing with these spirits. So witchcraft at that time was interfacing with regional, regionally understood spirits and performing acts such as healing, such as what we would consider midwifery today. And then you can always get the uh, naughty spirits on your side and uh, send a yellow bird to torment uh, your neighbor, make a poppet. Image magic has always been a classic and never grows old. <laughs> so you're using Christian formulas there. Uh, you could use a poppet to heal call on the apostles while you're sewing it up or go to the crossroad and uh, hit up the devil. There's a lot of uh, different ideas at that time. Uh, by the mid to late medieval period, then you have the emergence of what we would call cunning folk today who are basically traveling doctors or at least local doctors who, when they're not helping you heal, um, or look at your astrology chart. They were the primordial witch doctors, um, so to speak. So they took, I guess, what you call higher class magical ideas and translated it to ground level and used that to combat the bad magicians. Because you can only use magic to fight magic unless you have a ducking stool. <laughs> yeah. Um. What uh, what haven't we talked about that you wanted to bring up today? What, what else would you like to, to mention? <coughs> well, let's see here. Well, in regards to witchcraft, you also have uh, continuations, like I talked about uh, with the Spanish Inquisition, which is separate mm -hmm. from the Roman Inquisition, which was an entirely different uh, idea right. and different intent. You do definitely see survivals of paganisms, uh, throughout the Christian era. So, like I mentioned, uh, the Bosque, a lot of their stuff would eventually become Christianized, and I imagine that's where we get a lot of the Cyprian texts as well, uh, by the time Cyprian's name reaches uh, the Iberian Peninsula. But then you also have these wonderful uh, ideas of the witch's Sabbat, where you have women gathering around in caves at night and conjuring Satan and <laughs> engaging in all sorts of acts that 
from an anthropological level, actually do look like carryovers from a pagan indigenous practices if they weren't outright pagan and just because Spain was Christianized and thought they controlled the Iberian Peninsula ergo everyone's Christian unless you're Jewish or Muslim mm-hmm. um, many of them were persecuted what were what kind of magic uh, or you know illegal magic practices were were the Jews and Muslims being accused of in, in the Spanish Inquisition Well, you have apostasy because there can really only be one God, mm-hmm. naturally. And if you're Jewish, you killed Christ, so clearly you're trying to kill Christians. Um, this is where we have the resurgence of blood label that pops up periodically through Christian and European history and mm-hmm. results in horrible things like, you know, the Inquisition um, expelling Jews from Spain uh, during the Reconquista. Mm-hmm. Why not get rid of two birds with one stone while you're sending the Muslims back to Morocco? Ruthless efficiency, right? Exactly, exactly. So Jews were accused of all sorts of things, um, as were the Muslims as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, poisoning wells, the whole nine yards. And that can only be witchcraft because you're in league with the devil if you're not Christian. Right, one or the other. What uh, what holdovers do you see from the kind of uh, early Christian necromancy that we talked about in the first part? Um, how does that how does that perpetuate into this time period? Well, during this time period, uh, probably the most uh, visible example <coughs> is the uh, Black Plague. Uh, you have a very good chunk of Europe to some extent in various cities, over 90% of the population is wiped out. Mm -hmm. So you start thinking about life in a different way after you see a lot of your family die. Sure. So it's very easy to uh, try to want to thwart that using magical practices. But you also have a lot of access now to dead bodies where, ooh, hey, I need this for something. (laughs) I need this for reasons. I need this for reasons, exactly. So I would imagine that a lot of things become a little bit more accessible and uh, during times of extreme stress and uh, despair. Humans have this wonderful symbolic ability to put together pieces that either were preserved culturally or created from mere collective fantasy and create a uh, magical meaning behind it and bam! Mm -hmm. You have easy access to necromancy because what better way to do healing or cursing or you know a deal uh, appeal to the common need than approach the dead because hey they were once alive we knew them let's hit them up and hope they know better mm-hmm. so really I think if there is such a thing as a perennial philosophy is humans by nature resort to what works and we can put together symbolic logic and practices from higher, quote-unquote higher, Mm -hmm. um, practices such as like the devotion to the saints in Christianity and apply it to, say, Grandma Norma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the human's ability to find pattern and meaning in 
uh, many different uh, seemingly unrelated sources is uh, <laughs> it, it's a it's a valuable tool, but it it also causes a lot of problems. It does, it does, but that's humanity in a nutshell. So if there is a perennial philosophy or golden thread or chain of initiation, I think it's our common ability to do that, and that's just absolutely beautiful mm -hmm. and terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but beauty can also be terrifying. Look at Picasso. Sure, right. All right, well, I think we've gone through the list that I had. Uh, anything else you want to mention? I don't think I have anything. All right. Uh, that's, a good full, that's a good full docket of uh, <coughs> topics and lots of information that people can go off in their uh, various little rabbit holes and, and study. Um, you know, you certainly can't go wrong uh, studying this period of history. It was a fascinating part of, of Christian uh, Christianity in Europe at this time, so... Uh, lots of things. Any books you might recommend on uh, for people who are interested in this in this time period? Uh, yes, I do. Um, well, I mentioned before, I highly recommend uh, Jake Stratton Kent's Encyclopedia Goetica. So, if we want a little taste of the ancient world, we can always go with his um, goodness. What's the name of that? Uh, Geosophia. And for a more medieval flavor, we can go to the Testament of Cyprian the Mage, which is kind of a continuation of that, but also touches on medieval magic. I also heavily recommend uh, Aaron Leach's uh, Practical Grimoires, uh, or Mysteries of the Grimoires, something like that. His work is absolutely superb, as well as his Henochian studies. So those are great sources for more academic work. Uh, Penn State Press has a series of the history of magic. Um, Richard uh, Kirschdorfer's uh, Forbidden Rites is a wonderful expose of a uh, Italo-German Latin magical text of necromancy. And it's a wonderful place to start if you want to look into the more uh, dark side of medieval magic. Mm. All right, fantastic. Thank you for the recommendations. So uh, then let's wrap things up here and we will uh, prepare now for the next part, which is, uh, I guess, modern Christian magic uh, from uh, the Renaissance onwards. So we're looking forward to, to that. And thank you once again, Deacon Stroyan, for joining us and sharing your knowledge about this topic. Thank you very much. And also, again, thank you for having me out. All right. Anytime. So for those of you who are listening along at home, we will see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash G-N-O-S-T-I-C.